the letter that changed the world. And this is the third Sunday night we've been in Romans chapter 9. In some ways the most difficult, difficult in the sense of controversial. The most difficult chapter in the Bible and why we need to study it. This is, of course, 9, 10, and 11, as well as some passages in John. This is where the divide comes between uh, Calvinists and Wesleyans, Arminians. When I say Calvinism, do you all know what I mean? Oh, I shouldn't do this, looking at that clock. The two, basic, the two basic beliefs, and this is obviously, I can't do justice to either one this quickly, so whatever camp you're in, I apologize. Um, basic Calvinist doctrine held by, n- not all, again, this is oversimplifying, held by most Prepeti- Presbyterians, many Baptists, and on this side you would have, uh, you would have Wesleyans, you, you would have Alliance, you would have churches like ours, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. Lutheranism is, is a, it, in neither distinct camp. Luther was not a five-point Calvinist, though he tilts in different directions at different times. Calvinism is this belief. Either before God created the world or shortly afterwards, depending on which kind of Calvinist you are, God sovereignly decreed, sovereignly decreed certain people pre-selected, are the elect, and others aren't. Jesus came into the world and died on the cross, not for everyone. He died for the elect. Only the elect can desire to be saved. The non-elect, the non-elect uh, do not have the grace to desire salvation. God has not given them that grace. Both groups get exactly what they want. The non-elect are lost. They're lost because they want to be lost. But the reason they want to be lost is God has not given them grace to turn their hearts. In other words, they will be lost. There is nothing they can do or would even want to do to be saved. So salvation is not for everyone. Salvation is for the elect only. God pre-selects who those people will be. This, um, and I, and I, th- these are Christian people. This, this would be um, most of the Baptist churches around here. Uh, this would be the campus, eternal security, the campus. Many harvest churches would hold these kinds of views. Wesleyans, on the other hand, would believe that God extends through Christ universal prevenient grace to all people, but it's resistible. And so people choose to come to Christ or not to come to Christ. God wants them all to come. I mean, he genuinely wants them all to come. And so those are the two different camps. I didn't do justice to either one, okay? I understand that. But those are basically the two camps. This is the chapter where the divide comes, and this is where Calvinists feel the Bible is decisive on their viewpoint. So we're going to read. Y'all okay now? Picking up at verse 19. By the way, it is not fair, I'm doing it again, aren't I? 
it is not fair to Calvinists to say that there's all sorts of people that want to be saved and God just won't let them. No Calvinist believes that. And it's not fair to say that any more than people lump us in with some of the wingy things that charismatics do. There's no Calvinist, at least no intelligent one, who would say there are people that want to be saved, but God just won't let them in. They, they don't want to be saved. All those who are lost get exactly what they want. But they couldn't want anything other than that. Do you see what I'm saying? God doesn't soften their hearts. He doesn't draw them to himself. 19. I almost did something really stupid. I almost said, any questions on that? And that's a dumb <laughs> verse. <clears throat> verse 19. You will say to me then, and this is not like a Psalm 23 passage. This is a passage where you've got to have your head on and you're thinking. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? The he in there is God. Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Do you see why Calvinists like this passage? What if God, 22, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, listen, prepared for destruction. Ouch. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So these two vessels God's making. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Sounds kind of Calvinistic, doesn't it? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, as he says in Hosea, quote, this is from Hosea the prophet, those who were not my people, I will call my people. So, not just God's chosen Jewish people, but others. God's going to call them. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. This is what makes this a tough passage. He's pulling in all these Old Testament quotes in the middle of his teaching. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, concerning the Jews, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, listen, only a remnant of them will be saved. That's striking, isn't it? There's only a certain number. These people that think all Israel, God's just going to bring them all in. Paul says, no, no, just a remnant of them. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul knows that his words in verse 18 are going to bring a strong reaction from his Jewish listeners. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens, hardens the heart, hardens whomever he wills. 
So God isn't bound to show love and compassion only to the ethnic descendants of Abraham. That's what he's saying. God can't be locked into any one race. He said he'd pass the blessing of justification through the line of Isaac. Remember, we talked about that last week. And then he welcomed Ishmael into the covenant. He raised up Pharaoh, and he used his stubborn heart to reach a Gentile, Rahab. Remember when Joshua went into the city, and she talks about being delivered from Egypt and the stubbornness of Pharaoh, and that's what led her to the Lord. God is sovereignly free to extend the blessings of his grace to any and all who put faith in his promise, not just as the Jews then believed. They were, his, they were God's people. They were God's people. Jesus tried to reach the religious leaders, and they said, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. We don't, we don't need your help. God has mercy on whomever he wills, Jew, Gentile. Now, Paul knows in advance the idea that that 18th verse seems to carry like baggage on an airplane. The words seem to suggest a kind of fatalism. God chooses on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens the hearts of others. Well, then there's nothing left for us to do but wait and see how God plays his cards. If God determines both mercy and unbelief, how can we be responsible? Either way, that's exactly what Paul means in that verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he, the he is God, why does he still find fault? How can God blame sinners when he has an extended grace to them? They had no chance. That's what he means. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If, if this is what God does, he picks these people to be rebellious, he picks these people to be soft-hearted and gracious, then, then how can God fault people for their unbelief? It's his will. That's what Paul's saying there. The he and the his in that 19th verse are God. So, so here's the issue Paul wants to address. How can we be held in any way responsible for the condition of our hearts? I mean, let's face it. Who can do anything other than God's sovereign will? This is the way a lot of people interpret Paul's illustration in verse 20 and 21. You know, about the potter and the clay on the wheel. You see that in the, in, in, in the text, 20 and 21. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Clay has no say, right? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump? One vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? So if... God has the power to make our hearts either good or bad, and that seems to be what that illustration of the clay implies. If God has the power to make our hearts either good or bad, and I don't have any such power, then the good and the bad, that's God's doing. He's, he's the potter. And you know what happens. God becomes the only sinner in the universe. He decides. Good heart, bad heart. He makes what he makes. He's sovereign. 
He could make all the hearts good. Is that, could he? But he doesn't. He doesn't want to. This is why Paul can't let this argument just stand. Everything we've looked at, I know it looks like it's on one side of the issue. And our text today is directly related to the preceding count. If you were here last week about Pharaoh, God hardening his heart. It, it's directly relating to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And most important of all, it's especially related to the way in which God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the purpose God had in hardening his heart. So, point number one. I want to tell you how I work through these verses. Point number one, God is so powerful and so sovereign, he uses all people for his purpose, whether their hearts are open toward him in faith or closed in stubborn, free Rebellion, and I'll tell you why I interpret it that way in a minute. 19 to 21 is where I'm looking. You will say to me then, but why does he still find fault, God? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Can you imagine a piece of clay? There you are. You're working with the clay on the wheel, and all of a sudden the clay says, no, 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 I don't want to be a dish. I want to be a vase. That, that's, what he's, that's the illustration he's using. Well, the, the clay has no say in the process. Will what is molded say to its molder, 920, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? One vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. I know those are hard verses. But for me, the key for interpretation is found in the last part of verse 21. I hope I can make you see this. It's subtle, but it's important. Has the potter, 21, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use, underline use, and another for dishonorable use. The key word, I believe, the controlling word in that verse is that word use. This is a verse about God's sovereignly free use of any person or any group he chooses. Now, obviously, I think if you a good hermeneutic, a proper way to look at the passage... These words have their most immediate application to what Paul was just talking about. Pharaoh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And as we saw last week, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart in judgment for his stubbornness. I'm not going to go over that ground again. You can get that online, that teaching. But there's a new point that Paul is unpacking in today's text. And once we see it... We'll see how it ties in very intentionally with Paul's, Paul's initial concern for Israel and the Jews. The point Paul brings out is God's plan, God's covenant, God's promise, whatever term you want to use, it isn't failing through the cracks just because a lot of the Jewish people are rebelling against it. God uses all people 
and groups for his own purpose. So take note of this. These verses, the potter, the clay, and God making these vessels for his own use, these verses aren't about God determining people's character. There's no mention of character in that 21st verse. Take a look at it. There's no mention of character. These verses are about God determining people's use. Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? There's honored use, there's dishonorable use, but that's all there is. It doesn't say God made one good and one bad. It said God had a use for both of them. It's a passage about how God uses people for the accomplishment of his sovereign will. He uses believing, faithful people. And he uses unbelieving, rebellious people. God doesn't make the people believe, and he doesn't make them rebellious, except, except in the sense we've studied last week about Pharaoh's heart, how Pharaoh rebelled and rebelled and God finally hardens his heart, or about the moral sense of people who reject him in Romans 1, 18 to 32, where they suppress the truth and God gives them up. He hardens them in that way. And about the, what God will do to rebellious people again in the last days when they want to believe a lie rather than the truth. And Paul says in First Thess- Second Thessalonians 2 that God sends a delusion on them He hardens hearts that way, but it's a result of their stubbornness and unbelief. But here it doesn't talk about that. It's just talking about God using using believing people and God using unbelieving people. There's a reason this story is so important for Paul, and it fits his purpose through these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. See, many of God's people... The Jews, ethnic Jews, descendants of Abraham. They've responded in unbelief, Paul says. That's how it starts. He says, I I wish I could wish myself accursed if I could see my brothers. He's talking about the Jews come to Christ. A lot of them are in unbelief. Not all the descendants of Abraham have exercised the faith of Abraham. Does that mean that God's covenant with the Jewish people has failed? I mean, this is the whole issue Paul started to deal with in Romans 9, 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. But but not only, here's what he's saying now, not only has God's word not failed, God will sovereignly use the unbelievers in Israel to accomplish his great purpose. He's going to say so. Later on, Paul will tell us that God will use rebellious unbelievers among Israel to reveal grace to the Gentiles. If you, if you don't believe that, it's in Romans eleven eleven. So I ask, did they stumble? That's the Jews. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, look at this, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So, like Pharaoh, 
God will use even the rebellious descendants of Abraham to accomplish his sovereign purpose. That's the central message of this text. You still with me? Hello? Point number two. Here's an important point. God's use of people isn't arbitrary, fixed, or static, but turns and moves and varies in a process as they turn either away or toward God's reach of mercy and grace. Now that truth, I think, is implied in the image of our text. It's implied there, and then it's stated explicitly in other passages. The implied part from our text is conveyed in that story of the lump of clay on the potter's wheel. In fact, in my opinion, that's why Paul chose that famous Old Testament picture. It's from the book of Jeremiah. It's not a picture of a magician going poof and pulling a rabbit out of his hat all complete. There's nothing instantaneous about a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. Everything points to a shaping, doesn't it? Everything points to a process. There's a a smoothing, a wetting, a remaking, a collapsing, a building up. It's all done slowly. It's all done gradually. It's all done over time. And there's a reason for this gradual working of the clay. I said it's implied in that picture, and the process is stated explicitly in other places. Here's a very important passage. Is this in your notes, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21? Okay. I want you to notice, here is the same author, Paul, dealing with the same subject and using the very same terms. That's important. When you have the same author discussing the same subject and using the very same words, we have reason to give it considerable weight. Here's what Paul says. 2 Timothy 2.20 Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, okay, but also of wood and hay. Do you see this now? Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Is this sounding familiar? Therefore, but look at this. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's no reach to apply that to Paul's words in Romans 9 because when the same author uses the same words in the very same context, we need to note what's being said. Here are vessels, same word. Significantly, they're set aside for both honorable use and dishonorable use, very same terms. But here... We're told explicitly what the pottery image only implies. We're told explicitly people can change. They can turn from wickedness. They can leave what is dishonorable. And when they do, God uses their lives magnificently in different ways from what they were as dishonorable. Dishonorable use can turn into honorable use. Praise God. In fact, 
It's the repentant, faithful transformation of character that determines the divine use, not the other way around. Point number three. I'm trying to cover this. It's hard, but without wearing you out, because I know this is tough slugging. We'll be just a few minutes on this one, so don't rush. While God prepares people for faith with prevenient, that means in advance, prevenient, resistible grace, if people stubbornly resist this grace, they prepare themselves for divine wrath and destruction. But but even here, the important point from Romans 9 is God will sovereignly use all people to accomplish his fuller revelation of mercy. I get that in 22, 23, 24. What if God, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, and here's the hard phrase, prepared for destruction. We, got, we have to do something with that. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Okay. There's no getting around those opening words about God desiring to show his wrath. Verse 22. Uh, That doesn't go over well in today's market-driven church. We We really don't even like to hear about God's wrath. Paul talks about God's willing, wrathful judgment on wickedness and and unbelief. And this needs to be carefully read and proclaimed as part of the gospel. But there are two questions I want us to consider. We won't be long. First, why does God want to reveal his wrath to these vessels? Question one. And second, how do all these vessels get prepared either for wrath or for mercy? Let's look at the second question first. How do these vessels get prepared for wrath or mercy? Vessels of mercy are easier to deal with because the text tells us how these vessels are prepared and by whom. That's in 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God prepares vessels for mercy. Of course, it's a work of God or it wouldn't be mercy. If I earned it, it wouldn't be mercy. If I got myself into a good place to qualify, it wouldn't be mercy. It might be a reward, but it wouldn't be mercy. So that part's easy. God just shows his mercy. The wrath part. What if God, 22, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And now we get to it, don't we? This verse is quite different. But I want you to look at the words really carefully. Don't assume you read them right the first time. You'll find that Paul says God reveals his wrath and his power against them. But the verse doesn't say that God 
prepared them for wrath. Have you noticed that? The huge assumption made by Calvinism when they read has endured, 22, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And virtually every Calvinist I know says prepared for destruction means God prepared them for destruction. And I'm simply saying, if you look at the text honestly, all Paul says, all he says is these vessels are prepared for wrath. There's no comment about who prepared them and how they got that way. Look at, look at it in your Bible. It just says these are prepared for wrath. So it makes me want to step back and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. How, how did they get prepared? Who prepared them? If Paul doesn't tell us specifically in this verse, it, could it be, is it possible, that he hasn't told us that in this verse because in this very letter to the Romans, maybe he has told us. I think that's the better explanation for verse 22. I think Paul doesn't go into the details of this preparation for wrath precisely because he just finished a picture of this process five verses earlier in the description of Pharaoh. Pharaoh certainly did experience God's wrath in hardening his heart, but it was only after Pharaoh calcified his own heart by spurning the warnings of revelation from God through Moses. And that's not all. Let me tell you how I think hearts get prepared for wrath. There's a text that I think tells us exactly how it happens, and Paul deals with it very specifically. It's in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, listen, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Okay? So he says, you're going along, he's talking to the Jewish people, but to everyone. You're going along receiving blessing from the Lord every day. Everything from good health, to good food, to freedom, to answered prayer, to us, to Christian fellowship, to the blessings of his word, his kindness. Do you just, do you think about that or you, do you just presume on the riches of his kindness? The reason God is gracious and loving to all of us is to keep us repentant. That's why. That's what he says. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Look at. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, now we get into the wrath part, just like Romans 9. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What are these people going to get from God? It says. What are they going to get from God eventually? Say it out loud. Wrath. They're going to get wrath. Okay. Why are they going to get wrath? Is it because God just went eeny, meeny, miny, and just said, you, you're getting wrath? The text says that's not so. Are they going to get wrath because God doesn't want to show them mercy? No. 
The text is very clear. In fact, the reason God is giving them so much time, the reason he still, Romans 9, waits with patience, is he wants them to repent. But they're not going to repent. And it's not because God won't let them. Exactly like Pharaoh, as they resist, as they resist God, they store up wrath. It's another way of saying they're preparing for wrath. So in other words, we're wrapping up. They didn't, they didn't come out yet. They heard all this talk about wrath, and they said, I don't want to lead into a worship chorus right after that. In other words, just like Romans 9.22, there's no contradiction between these people being prepared for wrath and God waiting for them, 9.22 again, with much patience. The two processes run along the same human track. I said there were two questions about those verses, the wrath of God. The second question was, why would a loving God desire to show his wrath? What if God, 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power? Paul tells us why a loving God would desire to show his wrath. God wants to use even stubborn bent on wrath vessels to extend his mercy to a wider audience. 23 and 24. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So that last part of our text shows that this was not some last-minute adjustment God was making to the covenant of salvation. Both the inclusion of the Gentiles and the remnant of faith among the Jews were predicted long ago by all God's prophets. And all of this, though it's too big for our total comprehension, it fits into God's plan absolutely perfectly. So there are vessels of wrath. It's not because God wouldn't let them repent. They're prepared, not pre-selected. They're prepared by resisting mercy and grace. And God will use all of these things. Our God is big enough and wide enough to use it all to extend his mercy and grace to all who will believe with the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, just like you and I. And the whole world needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone said?